John 2, we're going to be starting in verse 13 this morning, and we'll have this up here on the screen as well. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. All right, guys, today we're picking back up in our study of John's gospel. And uh, by the way, just so thankful for Demiron who preached last week. Isn't he great? Love uh, getting to hear him speak. Enjoyed uh, listening to his message this week. Um, so really grateful that he could come share this time with us uh, before they move here in a few weeks. Uh, but as we get back into John today, uh, we come to what I have come to believe is actually a fairly misunderstood story in the life of Christ, what's known as the cleansing of the temple or the clearing of the temple. And before I actually walk through the text this morning, I want to quickly give you a couple of takes on this story that I have heard over the years in the church. Just a couple of like interpretations of what this is all about that I've heard um, in the, you know, almost 40 years that I've been around the church. So the first take is that Jesus walks into the temple and is suddenly enraged by the fact that there's commerce going on. This angers him because this is ostensibly a place of prayer and worship, and yet people are buying and selling goods. So Jesus is upset by that, and he not only runs everyone out, but he also turns over their tables and he pours out their money in dramatic fashion. And in this version, the thing that Jesus is bothered by is the buying and selling. And, and that's perhaps supported by verse 16 that says, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I remember as a kid growing up in the church, there was uh, some kind of musical artist came and performed at our church. Um, I mean, this would have been the late 80s, early 90s. And they set up uh, like a merch table out in the lobby. And I remember people in our church being really upset by that because of this text, right? Don't turn my father's house into a house of trade. How dare this person can come and like play his songs for us. But how dare he like sell T-shirts in the lobby? Um, there were people who believed that that kind of stuff was wrong based on this story. 
So, so that would be take number one. Uh, take number two is that Jesus is angry, not, not necessarily because there's buying and selling going on, but because the commerce that is going on is predatory to the poor in particular. Um, this view paints this almost as like a social justice issue. Uh, the text mentions people selling animals as well as people called money changers. Animals were being sold because this was Passover, and people had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And in coming to Jerusalem, they would go to the temple, and they would bring animals to be sacrificed at the temple. Demiron last week talked about Psalm 121, which is a psalm of ascent, which would traditionally have been sung by pilgrims making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So rather than bringing their own animals for sacrifice, a lot of people would opt to just simply buy animals when they got to Jerusalem. It made the trip easier. It was far less cumbersome. Or in some situations, maybe, uh, maybe the poor just weren't capable of bringing animals from great distances away. Also, the money changers, the Jews had to pay a temple tax every year, and the tax could only be paid in a very particular form of coinage. And so the money changers were literally there to do monetary conversions because people were coming in from all over the Roman Empire with their own like localized money, and the money changers would convert it into what it needed to be for them to pay the temple tax. And as a result, they were charged a fee for this. Just like if you go to France today and you get there and you get your money converted, you pay a fee to do that. It was the same kind of thing that was going on. But, but in this version of the story or this interpretation of the story, um, the thing that Jesus was upset about was not just that there was commerce going on, but that th these things were meant to like really take advantage of those who were unable to bring their own animals or those who had to, who had to have their money converted, that there were like maybe exorbitant fees that were being charged for those things. But that's not something the text tells us at all. There's also a little bit of a version of this take where Jesus is upset maybe by the fact that people are neglecting their duty to bring their first fruits to the temple and instead are going, eh, never mind, it doesn't really matter that we're uh, tithing in the way that the law of Moses told us to tithe. We'll just get there, we'll buy something, we'll buy a little nothing pigeon and we'll, you know, give that. Um, so that's, that's another version of that as well. So take one, Jesus is bothered by the sheer fact that there's buying and selling going on in the temple, in which case we should probably go uh, turn over the snack machine out here in the lobby. Um, or take two, Jesus is bothered by like predatory business practices that are going on. Now, before we unpack the text this morning and, and kind of look at those two ideas, um, and, and what I would throw out to you guys this morning. I do want to point out that this account in John is included in what sometimes is called the synoptic problem. The synoptic problem. If you remember, the synoptic gospels are basically all the other gospels except John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic because they are very similar. In fact, you will see almost the exact same stories in almost the exact same places in those three gospel accounts. Whereas John's gospel is distinct. It is sort of its own thing. 
And the synoptic problem that baffles scholars is why and how Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar. Why are they so similar? Were two of them using another as the source text that sort of gave them a pattern for writing their gospel accounts? Is there some, or was there some other, um, like another gospel account that is lost today that we no longer have that maybe was an earlier gospel account that those writers used when they were writing their gospels. This is, this is the synoptic problem. Like how, how did these things come to be and how is it that they are so similar? John, though, is distinct from the synoptic gospels. And while it would be inaccurate to say that John presents like an alternative timeline to what the synoptic gospels present, John does present moments that seem out of sync with the synoptic gospels. Because not only did those, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not only do they tell some of the same stories, they really do present a cohesive timeline together. And then John comes along and he throws out some things that make you go, well, wait a second, how does this fit in with the timeline that's presented by Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And so uh, this is one of those things when Jesus clears or cleanses the temple. Um, For some people, this throws a monkey wrench in the whole gospel timeline. In the synoptic gospels, um, Jesus clears the temple literally at the very end of his ministry. I mean, literally in Holy Week, the final week of his life. And it's painted in the synoptic gospels almost like a sort of final straw for the Jewish leaders. Like it's the moment where they go, okay, enough is enough. Like we've got to do something about this Jesus guy. But here in John, we find it literally at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. I mean, we have gone from him uh, being pointed out by John the Baptist to calling his first disciples to his first public miracle two weeks ago, the wedding at Cana, to now he's in Jerusalem cleansing the temple. And um, How does this work? How do we get here? What's going on? And so what I want to do is I want to walk through the text this morning, and, and I think we'll, um, we'll uncover some of what's happening here. Not only what's going on in the text, but maybe what we do with this seeming problem with the timeline. So let's start in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, one thing I think it's important for us to notice here is that at no point in our text does it say that Jesus was angry, does it? There's no point where it explicitly says that Jesus was enraged or that he was furious or that he was angry. I think that's something that we perhaps surmise because we think, well... What would have to happen for me to, like, walk into Whole Foods and make a whip and, and like, drive people out? Like, like, what's going on inside of me, 
right, in order for something like that to take place. Right? Like, like, this is like Will Smith <laughs> at the Oscars, right? Like, all of the commentary I've heard about that is, like, clearly something's going on in his life, right? To, to kind of make him snap and in front of millions of people assault somebody. Um, but what's interesting is in that, in that way of thinking about this, Jesus snaps, or, or Jesus is like, to use a very modern term, Jesus is triggered in some way, right? Like clearly it, there's something going on, going on here with Jesus, something else happening. And, and yet that's all stuff that we're like reading into the text when we read this. And I think it's natural, we naturally put ourselves into Jesus's shoes and think, if it was me, doing something like that, here's what must be going on inside of me. Like, I must be just completely overcome with rage or overcome with anger, or just furious at what I see. And the problem with thinking that way is that we are not Jesus, right? We are not Jesus. And I don't know that the text really paints this as a moment where Jesus snaps or where Jesus is triggered or where Jesus flies off the handle. It's not as if Jesus is blinded by rage and then a few moments later he comes to in a pile of tables and pigeons, right? But he clearly is impassioned here. He clearly is acting in a zealous way. And that's the way the disciples frame it. They remember this Old Testament text, which is Psalm 69.9, where David said, zeal for your house consumes me. King David talking about himself in Psalm 69.9, the disciples remember what David said of himself and the fact that the coming Messiah would be the greater and better David. And they attribute these words of David in this moment to Jesus himself. Zeal for your house consumes me. But what is, what is zeal? It's great energy. It's enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. So Jesus is motivated by his passion, his energy, his enthusiasm, not only for the temple, but specifically for the worship of God. So maybe don't approach this text as a moment where, where Jesus simply snaps out of anger, which would be sort of a responsive posture. But instead, approach it as Jesus doing something very intentional, very proactive. Another thing to notice here is the word temple itself. Um, this is confusing to us, maybe, because we're not like Eastern ancient people. Uh, but the temple at this point in time was not a single building. The temple was really like a complex of buildings. There was an outer wall that surrounded the temple complex, and then there were like different courtyard areas within the temple complex. Most of this was outside. Um, so you have an area over here that could be called the Court of the Gentiles. It's the only place in the temple complex where non Jews can go, it's the only place where they can worship. And then you have another area which is sort of the inner court of the temple. And in this inner court, you have the altar, and this is not to scale, obviously. Way back here, you have the actual temple building 
um, that is what we might think of when we think of a temple. We think of an actual building. It's back here, and then within this kind of inner complex, you have a court for women, because women could not come into this sort of inner place for Jews, even Jewish women. Um, and so there are all of these sort of levels of entrance within the temple complex, you could call it. So Jesus comes into the temple complex, and there are different Greek words for different parts of the temple complex. But in our English Bibles, they all just get translated as the word temple, which is not super helpful, honestly. Um, the word naos, N-A-O-S, the Greek word naos is the word that refers to like the temple building proper. Naos. The building would be where that, that inner room, the holy of holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant used to be. That's, that's where that would be. Um, but then there's another word, Hiron. And Hiron is the word that is used here by John. He doesn't say naos. He's not talking about the building itself. What he's talking about is the hieron, and the hieron is the court of the Gentiles. It's the place where Gentiles can enter and engage in worship of the Lord. Gentiles who've converted to Judaism, they can't go any further into the temple complex. They can only be there. And so when it says that Jesus came into the temple, this is the area where he is. He is in like this most outer court of the temple complex, not kind of in the inside. And so the money changers and those selling livestock, that's where they're all set up. They're all set up here in this outer court of the temple. Now, a couple of things are going on here. First, from a historical perspective, there had long been a need for money changers and for folks who would sell livestock to pilgrims who were coming from great distances away. That was not a new need or a new thing by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and in many ways, these folks were providing a service just like when you get money converted today when you're traveling. You pay for it, but it's a service to you so that you can, you know, engage in buying and selling in whatever place you are. So this was not something new, but what was new historically was that it was happening here. Um, there are a number of historical sources that point to the fact that while that, the selling and buying and all that stuff had been going on for a long time, it had originally perhaps been happening more at the outskirts of the city, maybe around like the Mount of Olives. As people were coming into Jerusalem, that's where they were encountering money changers, you know, kind of at the border, so to speak. And that's where they were buying animals and doing that kind of stuff. But as time had progressed, these things had moved closer and closer to the temple. And eventually, now, they're actually inside the temple complex itself. Um, but they're in the court of the Gentiles, which was the only place in the temple where I think something like this would happen. Gentiles were definitely othered by the Jews. And a lot of scholars think that Jesus' problem here is not necessarily that there's buying and selling going on. And it's not even necessarily that there's like predatory practices in motion. 
but that Jesus' problem here is that these things have taken over the only place where Gentiles can worship the Lord. Like they, they truly have taken the worship space and they have converted it into something else entirely. They've converted it into a marketplace, not what it's supposed to be, not what it's intended for. And so this is a double standard in a lot of ways because this would never be going on in here. Right? This would never be happening in the court of the Jews. Right? That would have probably been considered blasphemy. It wouldn't have been happening, but because it is in the space that's just for those Gentiles, then it doesn't matter. It's, it's more convenient for us Jews because we can come into the temple complex, get everything we need. We don't have to haul animals from the outskirts of town. It's already there, and who cares if these Gentiles are able to worship God in the way that they want to? So it's a double standard. It's a complete lack of concern for neighbor. It's complete lack of love for neighbor. And so, yeah, maybe on some level it's a social justice issue in that regard, but, but more than that, like a spiritual justice issue. This is the opposite of loving your neighbor. And this also, to me, jives with what seem to be Jesus' primary problems with the Jewish leaders in his day was that they were continually putting barriers between people and God, like putting things that made it difficult for people to worship God and be obedient to God in the way that he had called them. Let's read on, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So obviously this causes a ruckus. The Jewish leaders demand an account from Jesus. Who are you? What gives you the right? You know, it's that kind of thing. And Jesus responds in, you know, Jesus fashion. He says something that's seemingly non sequitur, something that seems very odd in the moment. But he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. These guys are like, what are you talking about? Right. We're, we're not talking about destroying anything. We want to know why you have why you have destroyed what's going on in this moment. And it seems to me uh, that Jesus is saying this, maybe primarily for the sake of his disciples, but also throughout John, throughout this gospel, John is constantly alluding back to his prologue. If you remember the very first week of this, we looked at the prologue to John, which is the first 18 verses of chapter one, and it comprised sort of a thesis statement for this entire gospel. And in the prologue, John said in verse seven, that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light, about Christ, so that all might believe through him. So all those who believe in Christ, even today, you and me, we can trace our spiritual heritage, our spiritual family tree back to John the Baptist, who in front of a few of his disciples pointed out Christ and said, behold, the Lamb of God. 
right? Like we can go back to that moment and see that he illuminated who Jesus was for people around him, and they went and told people, and they went and told people, and here we are today, 2,000 plus years later. But John, based on his prologue, has set out to show us examples of how this happened, but also to reveal to us that as these things happened, people saw and believed. It wasn't as simple as people saw and became curious, or people saw and wanted to learn more. No, people saw and believed, and by believed, he means they believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Two weeks ago, we looked at the wedding at Cana where Jesus famously turned water into wine. And we saw in verse 11 of chapter 2 that this was the first of his signs where he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Like they saw in that moment his divine power, his divine identity. And what we said was that Greek word that John used that gets translated as the word sign that is, it's, it's like something that identifies a person, something that identifies who somebody is. And so in all of these things, John is showing us who Christ is, and he's showing us why we should believe in his identity. Not, not just that he was a charismatic speaker or somebody who was able to draw a crowd or somebody who went into temples and did bombastic things, but literally that he is Christ. He is Messiah. Look at verse 23. But it wasn't just the disciples who believed. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So not just the disciples, but also other people are seeing and believing. And here John explicitly states Jesus' omniscience, his all-knowing. He knew what was in man. We've already seen this on display when he called Nathaniel, right? He said, I saw you under the fig tree. We're going to see it again when he encounters the woman at the well. But, but Jesus knows Jesus knows what's actually going on in people's hearts. He knows what their motivations are. So he doesn't allow himself to be swept up by populism. Like he doesn't allow himself to sort of be picked up on people's shoulders and, and carried around as Messiah. So he's well aware of what's actually happening. Even though people are thinking, hey, this could be him, he also sees what comes of that. People at this time, and this becomes clear as we read through the Gospels, really believed that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would not simply be a spiritual leader. Messiah would be a military leader. Right? The Messiah is somebody seemingly who's going to come in and be the new King David. And by that, people understood that that meant that he was going to usher in another golden age for our nation, not, not, not America, but for Israel. Right? And in this new golden age, the Messiah is going to get rid of any oppressors. Right? The Messiah is going to run out the Romans. The Messiah is going to do away with anybody who would try to enslave us or coerce us. And so surely when he comes, he's going to be, you know, kind of riding in on a white horse, holding a sword, like ready to do battle. 
And, and I have to think that, you know, when it says that Jesus knew what was inside of people, he knew that even though there were people who believed that, hey, this may actually be the Messiah, that what's going on in their hearts is, oh, man, finally, finally this person is here to do away with the Romans. Maybe he's going to kill all of them, and he's going to ascend to the throne of Israel. He's going to reinstitute the glory of our nation. Those kinds of thoughts were clearly going on at this time, even among some of the disciples as well. So he doesn't allow himself to be swept up in this. So let me wrap up this morning in a couple ways. First of all, I want to quickly address this so-called problem with the timeline. And and then I want to consider um, what bearing a fringe Jewish rabbi whipping some people out of the temple has to do with us in our lives today. First, the timeline issue. Um, So I'm of the opinion that this is simply a scene that we do not see in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, Even though we see Jesus clearing the temple during Holy Week in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, I think here in John what we're seeing is another moment, a second moment, where Jesus is doing the exact same thing. And you can read the accounts between John and or among John and the other synoptic gospels, and they're slightly different in some ways. Um, but I don't think this is the exact same moment that John has like plucked out of the end of the story and placed in the beginning of the story. Um, and there are a few reasons for this. Uh, first of all, John seems very concerned with presenting a literal linear timeline in this gospel. The first two chapters give us an almost day-by-day account of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Go back and read the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. John's basically saying, this day, this happened. And then the next day, this happened. And then three days after that, this happened. So he began this whole thing by speaking in that sort of linear um, way. Also here in John, he is really diligent to record Jewish feasts. Um, almost in ways that the other gospel writers don't. So um, he will present us with three, possibly four Passovers. Um, We will see two feasts of tabernacles, or what are sometimes called the Feast of Booths. Um, We will even see Jesus at the Feast of Dedication, or what we would know as Hanukkah. All here in John. So he is walking us through multiple years in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so it just doesn't make any sense that he would grab this one moment, plop it down here in the beginning of the story, um, apropos of nothing, and not do that at any other time for any other reason. It doesn't make any sense at all. Secondly, most of what we see here in the first few chapters of John is stuff that is not recorded in any of the other Gospels. So, I mean, if you think about it, the wedding at Cana, uh, the interaction at night with the Pharisee Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman at the well, all of those are stories here at the beginning of John that are unique to the Gospel of John. We don't find them anywhere else. And in the middle of all of this is Jesus clearing the temple. So it just makes sense that this is yet another scene that we just don't get in those other Gospel accounts. But then third, and and this seems, this to me is kind of the biggest one. I I don't think Jesus is ever doing anything just for show. I don't think he's doing anything just for show. Jesus is doing this, and by this I mean clearing the temple. He's doing this because it is who he is and how he is. 
Zeal for God's house consumes him. So it doesn't make sense to me that Jesus would walk into the temple one time and see the trade going on and see everything that's happening in the court of the Gentiles and not be modified or modified. What is that? Motivated. Motivated. Would not be motivated by zeal. But then later on, a few years later, would come back and would suddenly be motivated by zeal. It doesn't make sense. So it's like every time he walks into the temple, this is something that grips him. He's running these people out because this is who he is. Sometimes we can have this view in particular of Old Testament messianic prophecy that Jesus fulfills things because he knows what's been written about him and he has like this divine checklist he has to move through. So like be born in Jerusalem or be born in Bethlehem, check. Uh, Be a descendant of David, check, right? Be silent before your tormentors, check. But, But Jesus is not on a mission to fulfill prophecy just so that he can be validated as the Messiah. No, he fulfills prophecy because he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Does that make sense? He fulfills prophecy not because he's trying to. He fulfills prophecy because that is who he is. So he's not putting on a show in the temple so that people will go, oh yeah, zeal for your house will consume him. And they'll draw the lines together, even though that naturally happens. He's not doing it just for that purpose. He's doing it because zeal for the Lord's house consumes him. And so it makes sense to me that that would be true any time that he walks into the temple at Passover and sees everything that's going on. But what does this have to do with us? I mentioned earlier uh, the story of the people at my church as a kid who were upset about folks selling CDs in the lobby. Um, but the way you get there to that place is by saying that this building is the Lord's house, that the analogous temple in today's world is the church building itself, that this is the Lord's House, And so I need to be ready to be Jesus in this Lord's house. I need to be ready to proverbially fashion a whip and, and drive out anybody that's not doing the right stuff. And this is actually an idea that's fairly common in Western evangelicalism. It's certainly common in uh, the Roman Catholic Church that the physical structure itself is God's house. Uh, We used to sing this song. Maybe some of you guys grew up singing this. uh, We are standing on holy ground. And and I think the insinuation there is that this is like a so-called sacred space. And we were like Moses at the burning bush when God told him to take his shoes off because it was holy ground. But the problem with all of that is it doesn't really work biblically. It doesn't really work biblically. The place... Um, this place, uh, the Catholic Church a block over, uh, First Methodist down the street here, these places are not the house of God. You are. I am. First Corinthians 3, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So what does this have to do with you and me? Everything. Everything, because the, the analogous temple in today's world is not a physical structure. It's literally the body of Christ. It's those who have seen and believed and responded in faith, who've devoted their lives to the way of Christ. It's you and me. And the thing is, Jesus' zeal for God's house is not a thing of the past. It is a present reality today as well. He is zealous for you and for me. And it's not like a question of, like, what are the proverbial money changers that you need to run out of your life? Because we certainly all have sin. And yet through Christ, we are being sanctified. Paul says God's temple is holy and so are you. So it's not a hope that one day we will be holy. He says in God's eyes, through Christ, we are already holy. We have been made new. But instead, because we are God's temple in this world, we are the ones, listen, we are the ones through whom other people encounter the Lord. We are God's ambassadors, his kingdom emissaries, his kingdom agents in this world today. We are the ones who have been sent with the gospel and sent with the spirit within us so that other people might encounter the Lord. In the same way that Gentiles would come into the outer courts of the temple in order to encounter the Lord, in order to worship God. Folks, today the church has been sent with this mission that our lives would be the kind of lives that people encounter the Lord through. Not simply because you're a good person or a nice person, but because God's spirit literally dwells inside of you. And if our analysis of today's text is correct, Jesus' problem is that the money changers and the animal salespeople are a barrier to worship. They're a barrier in a space that should be all about prayer and love and devotion to the Lord. So this is about, like, what do I need to exorcise in my life so that people might more readily encounter the Lord through me? What are the ways in which my life does not declare that I am a temple of the Lord? Friends, we have to remember the incredible gifts that we have been given through Christ, but also that to whom much is given, much is required. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that one of the biggest barriers here, and this is, good Lord, certainly true in our world today and in the church today, one of the biggest barriers to us being the kind of people that other people can encounter the Lord through is sex. 
1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I, I think the image here that, that Paul's painting for us, and, and certainly as it re- relates to like pursuing sexual purity in, in this, but I, I think this relates to all things. As we are a people who are taking hold of this notion that we are no longer our own, but that instead we have been bought through the body and blood of Christ, and that now as a result of that, our lives are wholly devoted to him. That that if that is true, and our pursuit is what Paul said, right? To, to, To be people who are like living embodiments of the presence of the Holy Spirit, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and that therefore we should honor God, not just with our words, but with our bodies, that it's natural that other people will see that. It's what we talk so often about around here. It's about being a distinctive flavor, a distinctive aroma in our world today. Something that people look at and are either deeply compelled by or they look at and go, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So I want to leave us there this morning Because this text takes us right into next week, into Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And as we enter into Holy Week itself, is there anything more significant that we could consider than what it looks like not only to honor God with our words, but also with the whole of our lives? What it looks like to honor God with our bodies, with our decisions, with our actions, with our interactions with our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers, classmates. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. And I'm going to pray this morning that God's spirit would reveal to us the ways in which we act like our lives and our bodies are our own and that we would be quick to repent of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would, through your power and presence, deepen our understanding of what it means to be your temples in this world today. Help us to understand, Father, that that is not a legalistic thing, but is instead meant to be an incredible experience of your grace that 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 not only have you like saved us from death and hell but that you have literally come to dwell in us and that that is only possible through Christ and in the scheme of human history it's this unprecedented thing help us this morning father to be Captivated by how incredible that is and inspired by your spirit 
to not just seek to live lives of mission, but to seek to live with such a love of you and neighbor that other people who experience our lives have the opportunity to experience you. And Father, despite our sin and our shortcomings, Lord, would you use us in that way, in our conversations, in our interactions, even when we're not aware, even when we're maybe not being intentional. Lord, would you help us to be so motivated by your spirit, so filled with your spirit, that it just comes off of us. And Lord, would you in your mercy cleanse us of the things that would be a barrier to that? Cleanse us of the sins, the inordinate affections, the earthly or worldly pursuits, Father, that would divert our attention away from being your covenant people. Reveal those things to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us, guys.